Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 29, Genesis chapters 30 and 31. All right, this week we are going to get into uh, Genesis chapter 30. And in the last lesson, we saw Jacob, not yet called Israel, we saw Jacob take a wife. Actually, he wound up with two wives. It's the sisters, Leah and Rachel. Because his conniving father-in-law, Levon, or as in English we say Laban, um, had deceived him much in the same way that Jacob had deceived his own father. I mean, is it not amazing in life that Yehovah often shows us our own sin and the devastating effect it has on other people by permitting someone to do to us as we've done to another. So Jacob pulled the old switcheroo on his father Isaac because he wanted to ensure that he and not his brother Esau received the best blessing. And now, as upsetting as that deception was to his father, and embittered Esau for years to come, now, after working for seven years for Lavon that he might have Rachel for a wife, during the wedding ceremony, Lavon pulls the old switcheroo on Jacob, who wakes up to find that it was Leah and not Rachel that he had married. Right. Well, near the end of chapter 29, which we just completed, Jacob had become a father for the first time. And let me remind you that, that this was a man that was now into his 80s. Okay? And the focal point of the last several verses of chapter 29 was about Leah providing those sons for Jacob. First Reuben, then Simeon, next Levi, and finally Judah. And the chapter ends by telling us that for some unknown reason, Leah's womb just dried up. She stopped producing children. Now the first several verses of chapter 30 are going to switch gears. Okay? And they're going to tell us a lot about Rachel. And the contrast between Leah, the plain but godly sister, and Rachel, the beautiful but worldly sister, couldn't be more clear. Okay. Jacob is still up in Haran at this time, in uh, Haran of Mesopotamia. And it is interesting that we find that like Abraham, who was born in a land outside of the promised land, so it would be for Jacob's children. Okay. The ones who in the future would be called the tribes of Israel began life as foreigners. So let's read now together Genesis chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing children for Yaakov, Jacob, she envied her sister and said to Yaakov, Give me children or I'll die. This made Jacob angry at Rachel. And he answered, Am I in God's place? He's the one who's denying you children. And she said, here, 
Here's my maid Bila. Go sleep with her and let her give birth to a child that will be laid on my knees so that through her I too can build a family. So she gave him Bila, her slave girl, as his wife. And Yaakov went in and slept with her. And Bila conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has judged in my favor. Indeed, he has heard me and given me a son. Therefore, she called him Dan. Okay. Bila, Rachel's servant uh, girl, conceived again and bore Yaakov a second son. Rachel said, I have wrestled mightily with my sister and won. And so she called him Naphtali, which means my wrestling. Right. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took Zilpah, her slave girl, and gave her to Yaakov as his wife. Zilpah, Leah's slave girl, bore Yaakov a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called him Gad. Zilpah, Leah's slave girl, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, how happy I am. Women will say I am happy. And called him Asher, which means happy. During the wheat harvest season, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And she answered, isn't it enough that you have taken away my husband? Do you have to take my son's mandrakes too? And Rachel said, very well. In exchange for your son's mandrakes, sleep with him tonight. And Jacob came in from the field in the evening. Leah went out to meet him and said, you have to come and sleep with me because I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my hire because I gave my slave girl to my husband. So she called him Yisachar, hire, reward. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. And Leah said, God has given me a wonderful gift. Now at last my husband will live with me since I have borne him six sons. And she called him Zebulun. After this, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God took note of Rachel, heeded her prayer and made her fertile. She conceived, had a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She called him Yosef, saying, May Adonai add to me another son. After Rachel had given birth to Yosef, Yaakov said to Levon, Take me on my way so that I can return to my own place, to my own country. Let me take my wives, for whom I have served you and my children, and let me go. You know very well how faithfully I have served you. Levon answered him, If you regard me favorably, then please listen. I have observed the signs that Adonai has blessed me on account of you. Name your wages, he said, and I'll pay them. And Jacob replied, You know how faithfully I have served you and how your livestock have prospered under my care. The few you had before I came have increased substantially. Adonai has blessed you wherever I went. But now, when will I provide for my own household? And Levon said, what should I give you? Nothing, 
answered Jacob, just do this one thing for me. Once more, I will pasture your flock and take care of it. I will also go through the flock and pick out every speckled, spotted, or brown sheep and every uh, speckled or spotted goat. These and their offspring will be my wages. And I will let my integrity stand as witness against me in the future. When you come to look over the animals constituting my wages, every goat that isn't speckled or spotted and every sheep that isn't brown will count as stolen by me. And Labad answered, uh, as you've said it, so be it. That day Laban removed the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the female goats that were speckled or spotted, every one with white on it and all the brown sheep and turned them over to his sons and put three days distance between himself and Yaakov. Yaakov fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Yaakov took fresh cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white streaks on them by peeling off the bark. Then he set the rods he had peeled upright in the watering troughs so that the animals would see them when they came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the animals mated inside of the rods and gave birth to streaked, uh, speckled, and spotted young. Jacob divided the lambs and had the animals mate with the streaked and the brown in the flock of Laban. He also kept his own livestock separate and didn't have them mixed with Laban's flock. Whenever the hardy animals came into heat, Yaakov would set up the rods in the watering trough so that the animals would see them and conceive in front of them. But he didn't set up the rods in front of the weaker animals. Thus, the more feeble were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. In this way, the man became very rich and had large flocks along with male and female slaves, camels, and donkeys. Interesting story. Well, Rachel, who had been blessed with beauty, a quality for which she really couldn't take any credit, the wife who got the lion's share of Jacob's attention is now jealous of the one trait of her sister that other than for that one trait made Leah an afterthought in Jacob's life and that was her ability to bear children. Now like a small petty child Rachel actually blames Jacob for her barrenness and Jacob replies by telling her pretty firmly that it would appear that he is not where the problem lies. So taking a page from her grandmother, Sarah's life, she gets into the act by giving her personal servant girl to Jacob to have children in her stead. Now, we see this reference here, as we've seen it a few times before, of the servant girl being given by her mistress as a wife. We see the term wife used here. Her status was indeed elevated from being a simple servant because she became a concubine of Jacob's. But that status did not reach to that, did not make her equal with either Leah or Rachel because they were both legal wives right, with all the rights and honors and marriage ceremonies 
all right, that went with the position of legal wife versus concubine wife. Now, the story of Jacob and Rachel allows me to point something out here that needs to be made clear. God most certainly did not validate Jacob's choice to take two wives any more than he did Isaac's nor Abraham's. Okay. Too often we like to say, well, it's in the Bible, so God must be okay with it. All right. Not so. Very often the Holy Scriptures simply tell the historical truth. It tells us what happened, what was said, and then doesn't necessarily even specifically comment on it. Okay. Rather, these statements simply stand on their own. God had already made it quite clear in Genesis that marriage was the forming of one flesh from two, not from three, four, five, or six, or Solomon so much later, several hundred. Now this is why it is so important to read and study the whole Bible, so that we can separate God's commands and principles and characteristics from simple statements of humans of historical fact. Okay? The Bible is full of statements by men and women and, and many of those statements, quite frankly, are outright lies. Right? Or they're self-aggrandizing, or they're greatly exaggerated, or, or wishful thinking, or they're even rationalizations of their personal behavior. Or perhaps they're just expressions of widely held superstitions of that era. Okay? In the case of Jacob, he deceived his brother Esau and his father. It wasn't right, but he did it. And the Bible simply reports it. Okay. Jacob didn't pick the wife, Leah, on his own that apparently God had selected for him. He picked the one, Rachel, that most pleased his fleshly and impulsive male desires. It wasn't right, but he did it. And the Bible just reports it. Then he winds up marrying two wives. It wasn't right, but he did it. The scriptures tell us about it, and so on and so forth. Okay. We must never assume that since the Bible does not comment on every statement or action as to whether it was right or wrong, good or evil, that those things that weren't commented on must be at least to some degree acceptable to God. Okay? Because if we have Torah in our hearts and we've studied it and we've read it and we, we'll know then what was right and wrong in God's eyes. And that is what we're expected to do. I mean, the fact that we are given the full, unflinching view of those biblical characters and who they were, flaws and all, doesn't change God's absolute, unchanging, uncompromising truth. Like us, every Bible character, except Yeshua, was imperfect and did things they shouldn't have done. Okay, well, let's move on. Okay. Rachel gives Bela to Jacob to bear a child in her stead. Now verse 3 says Rachel gave Bela so that, and depending on your Bible, the verse will say something like, she may bear on my knees and through her I too may have children. Okay, Interesting statement. That phrase, may bear on my knees. Well, what this is, is a Hebrew idiom that is reflective of a long-standing Middle Eastern custom. Okay? And the custom is 
that by ceremonially, uh, ceremonially placing a child on one's knees or lap, that person is signifying that they are claiming that child as their own. This is a legal claim. Okay? And it's done for the kinds of reasons that we see here. Where a servant is meant to be used as a surrogate mother for the servant's master. Or when a child is even being legally adopted. Okay? Um, so we need to understand that in the same way Rachel had full right to claim the child or children that her servant girl Bela is going to bear, Rachel equally has full right not to accept any of those children or some of them or all of them, whatever one she wants. The rest she doesn't have to take. It's not her responsibility. Okay. I mean, she's not obligated to keep any of those children even if they came from her own husband's seed. So for all we know, and very likely is the case, right, Bela probably produced some girl babies all right, along the way, and there is no evidence that Rachel accepted them as her own. Okay? I mean, it would have been a great shame upon Bela if she were not allowed to produce and keep some children for herself. And a servant of this type was very well treated and loved and cared for and considered actually part of the family. Right? So it's unthinkable that she wouldn't have been permitted to uh, have and raise some children of her own. Of course, the purpose for this particular narrative in Genesis is to show where the tribes of Israel came from. And so the only pertinent information would be about the sons that were produced and not daughters, though we do find one notable exception. Okay, now, Bela, Rachel's servant, now Jacob's concubine, bears him a son in Rachel's name. And the son's name is Dan, or actually properly pronounced Don, all right, which means to, to judge. And not too long thereafter, she gives him another son, Naphtali, which means wrestling, or can also mean contest. Well, Leah, who we're told at the end of the last chapter stopped bearing children for some unknown reason, sees her sister Rachel's success and its apparent rewards and allows herself to now be infected with these weak notions. So she gives her own servant girl, Zilpah, to Jacob to bear children in her stead. All right. And Jacob, his sinful weaknesses so readily apparent already, all right, just can't seem to do the right thing either. And he accepts Leah's servant girl as another of his concubines. Well, first Gad, then Asher, are born to Zilpah. All right? They are claimed, legally claimed, by Leah as her own children. Now the fact is, there's a bit of a battle going on here between these two sisters. They each wanted to be their husband's favorite. All right? And they each figured they would earn that favoritism by giving him highly valued sons. So a little later, these competitive and superstitious sisters make a deal. It seems that Reuben, Leah's son, goes out into the field and gathers mandrakes. Now, mandrakes 
are supposed to be an aphrodisiac. Okay, why would he do that? Because Reuben was well aware that Jacob, his father, would alternate sleeping with his two legal wives, Leah and Rachel. But Leah was still playing second fiddle to Rachel, and of course that open favoritism bothered Reuben because it bothered his mother, Leah. I mean, sex was just part of life, all right? Particularly for children raised around herds and flocks, all right? And and Reuben is just trying to help his mother out, all right? Who undoubtedly complained to her son about the unfairness of this situation, all right? And he thinks that perhaps mandrakes are the answer to his mother's unhappiness. In Hebrew, the word translated mandrake is dudaim. Dudaim. And while a lot of folklore is attached to the aphrodisiac powers of mandrakes, they were widely used back then all right, for real useful medicines. Okay. Now mandrakes bear small cherry tomato-like fruit all right, that ripens about the same time as the wheat harvest. Okay. It has a very heavy fragrance to it. In fact, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, had a nickname. Her nickname was Lady of the Mandrakes. All right. And what's interesting also is that since Hebrew is a root-based language, we find that the word for mandrake, dudaim, is an offshoot of the Hebrew word dodai, right, which means love. So in the Song of Solomon, for instance, we'll see a play on those two Hebrew words, Dudaim and Dodai. All right? Therefore, I will give my Dodai to you as the Dudaim gives off their fragrance, it'll say. All right? And that's just a common Hebrew way of making kind of a poetic statement. But as we're about to see, while the scriptures don't directly say that the use of mandrakes for the purposes Leah and Rachel had in mind are just ridiculous superstition, it does make a point of demonstrating that. Okay? Because we're going to see that the one who gave up the mandrakes, Leah, is the one who produces the next three children. All right, while Rachel, the one who wound up with the mandrakes, remains barren for a few more years. So Rachel, upon seeing the mandrakes that her nephew, Reuben, had gathered, never even considered Leah's feelings. All right, and says, hey, why don't you give me some of those? Leah says, right, so you can go sleep with my husband. I mean, yikes, I mean, what, what do you do here? Well, and what must have passed for some kind of weird wisdom all right, between the two of them, Leah gives Rachel the mandrakes in exchange for Rachel agreeing that it will be Leah that sleeps with Jacob that night. I mean, talk about R-rated. I mean, this whole thing is like that. It's amazing. Anyway, Leah gets pregnant and then gives birth to Yissachar, which means God re brings reward. Now, verse 18 informs us 
that this confused woman actually decided that Issachar was God's reward to her for giving to Jacob her servant girl as a concubine. I mean, talk about a dysfunctional family. It makes me feel better just standing here telling you the story. <laughs> Leah then goes on to give Jacob another son, Zebulun, meaning dwelling. Why dwelling? Because Leah thought for sure that since her childbearing scorecard far outpaced her sister Rachel's, that Jacob certainly would dwell with her in preference to, or perhaps even better, to the exclusion of that other woman, Rachel. Well, next we have that exception to the rule that I was telling you about, about talking usually only about sons that were born. A girl, Dinah, or Dinah, all right, in Hebrew, Dinah, all right, is born to Leah. And after that, it's Rachel's turn. She gives birth to Joseph, Yosef, whose name is a very interesting word play in the original Hebrew as used here in these verses. Look at verse 23 with me. Look at verse 23. Okay. <clears throat> Speaking about Rachel, it says that she gave birth to a son. And Rachel announced that God has taken away my disgrace. The Hebrew word translated as taken away is asaf. Asaf. In the next verse, Rachel goes on to say that she therefore would name him Yosef because the Lord added another son to her. Yosef means to add. Asaf means to take away. Yosef, add. Asaf, take away. This Joseph's name is actually those two names combined. And this was a prophetic name for, <coughs> J for Joseph because in a few years, Joseph would be taken away from his father and his family and then many years later, he would be added back. Okay. Now, it's interesting to note here, as I mentioned at the beginning of this lesson, that all but one of Jacob's children would be born while he was still in bond servitude to Laban. And while they were still living way up north in Haran of Mesopotamia. So just as the sons of Israel would be born outside of the promised land, so would they be held captive and grow into a nation outside of the promised land in Egypt. Well, for 14 years, seven years each for his two wives, um, Jacob has worked for Levon, and he's ready to have his bond servitude acknowledged as paid in full by Levon. But that ever crafty, greedy Levon is not ready for Jacob to leave because he's profited greatly by Jacob's presence there. Now, Laban, Levon, is a pagan spiritualist. Okay, that is, he believes in the spirit world. Okay, frankly, as most people did in, in, in that day, it's unthinkable to people that there wasn't a whole world of spirits. All right? 
And, and he believes that there are many gods in the spirit world, and he believes that Jacob's God is just one of these gods. So in verse 27, Laban invokes Jacob's God and says that he has spiritually divined, now divining things of the spiritual world or what psychics and mediums do. Um, um, and he's divined that it is Jacob's God that has caused all the great increase in the her uh, herds and the flocks to happen. Which is most certainly true. But the fact is, Laban's just saying this to get Jacob to stay. Okay. So here we see two masters of deception, Jacob and Laban, doing battle with one another. Okay. And Jacob employs the thing he knows best, tending flocks and herds to his advantage against the apparently ignorant Laban. And he says, okay, he'll stay for a while more. If he's given all the speckled and spotted sheep and goats. Understand, this was not hard for Laban. He didn't want them. Okay? The clever Jacob convinces Laban the reason for this is that it makes it very easy to both identify which animals belong to him and which belong to Laban and to identify the increase of the two flocks Besides their animals, Laban doesn't really care that much about anyway. Now, in reality, Jacob knows he can make his own flock increase more and Laban will never be able to cheat him by saying that some of those animals are his because their coloring sets them apart. Okay? The deal about the sticks that seems to make the animals breed and produce spotted, striped, and speckled offspring has been called by Bible scholars anything from rank superstition up to the ancient way of promoting Mendelian genetic breeding. All right, now, more is at work here than meets the eye. But these subtleties are automatically disguised by the translation from Hebrew to other languages. Now notice that the emphasis in these passages are on color. Okay? The color of the animals would determine whether the animal belonged to Jacob or to Levon. And the gist of this is that all the white sheep and all the dark goats go to Laban, while the goats that had the white spots or streaks in their dark hair and the white sheep that had some dark spots in their wool are to go to Jacob. Now you have to understand that sheep usually were pure white, right? And goats normally dark brown or black, right? Implicit is that Levon had a big preference for the white animals, sheep. Why? Because white for sheep was the norm and no spots of dark color normally occurred on sheep. It was the reverse for goats. They were always dark and only rarely had white spots on them. So, if it was all white, it went to Levon, and practically all the sheep were white at that moment of the deal. Okay? In Hebrew, the word white is Levon. Get it? Okay. Jacob's father-in-law's name means white. 
and all the white animals go to Mr. White. Right? Now, Levon's expectation was that the amount of sheep born all white would vastly outnumber those who had some dark spots on them. Ditto for the amount of dark colored goats that would greatly outnumber those who had a few white spots on them. Okay? That, the, that, that the herds of spotted goats and sheep increased as much and more than the all-white sheep and all-dark goats infuriated Laban. Okay? The white spots and white streaks on the goats denotes that Jacob got the best of Laban in a very visible way. And this was an open insult to Laban. And it would quickly fester into a pretty big problem. Okay? Because it was going to stare him in the face every day when he got up in the morning. Okay? In the end, Jacob grew far superior flocks and herds to Laban's. And Jacob became greatly prosperous as a result. The servant had become greater than the master. Okay? All this did nothing but exacerbate an already dangerous rift that was growing between Levon's clan and Jacob's growing family. And trouble was just over the horizon. All right, let's read. Let's go, go a little further tonight. We'll read about hmm, halfway through Genesis 31. But then he heard what Levon's sons were saying. Jacob has taken away everything that our father once had. It's from what used to belong to our father that he's gotten so rich. He also saw that Levon regarded him differently than before. Adonai said to Jacob, Return to the land of your ancestors, to your kinsmen. I'll be with you. So Jacob sent for Rachel and Leah and had them come to the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see by the way your father looks that he feels differently towards me than before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength and that your father has belittled me and he's changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to do me any damage. If he said the speckled be your wages, then all the animals gave birth to the speckled young. And if he said the streaked will be your wages, then all the animals gave birth to streaked young. This is how God has taken away your father's animals and given them to me. Once when the animals were mating, I had a dream. I looked up and there in front of me, the male goats which mated with the females were streaked, speckled, and mottled. Then in the dream, the angel of God said to me, Jacob, and I replied, here I am. He continued, raise your eyes now and look. All the male goats mating with the females are streaked, speckled, and mottled. For I have seen everything Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a standing stone with oil, where you vowed your vow to me. Now get up, get out of this land, and return to the land where you were born. Rachel and Leah answered him, We no longer have any inheritance from our father's possessions, and he considers us foreigners since he sold us. Moreover, he has consumed everything he received in exchange for us. Nevertheless, the wealth which God has taken away from our father has become ours. 
and our children's anyway. So whatever God has told you to do, do. Then Jacob got up, put his sons and wives on the camels, and carried off all of his livestock along with all the riches he'd accumulated, the livestock in his possession which he'd acquired up in Padan Aram, to go to Yitzhak, his father, in the land of Canaan. Let's stop there. Well, here we witness history repeat itself. Jacob had a life in so many ways similar to his grandfather Abraham's. He was a man without a country, a wanderer. I mean, did he belong to Mesopotamia or did he belong to the land of Canaan? And we're reminded of the situation between Lot and Abraham when Lot's wealth grew such that it caused tension between those loyal to Abraham and those loyal to Lot. So the only solution was separation. So Jacob and Laban now find themselves in a very similar situation. Now it's rare in the Bible that we find division and separation occurring on happy terms. Something unpleasant is almost always at the heart of the matter to cause it. So perhaps, you know, we should take heart that the divisions and separations that have happened in our lives <coughs> resulting even from bad judgment and selfishness, sin, or even something completely out of our control are actually normal. Okay? It, it's a Christian cliche that God uses imperfect people to bring about his perfect will. I mean, in reality, what other kind of perfect are there than imperfect? What are, rather, what other kind of people are there than imperfect for him to work with? That's all there are. So just as Lot cut ties permanently with Abraham and went on to form a new and separate family line that would result in the nations of Moab and Ammon, here we find that Jacob will, due to circumstances that Yehovah uses to achieve his purposes, finally cut family ties with the land of Mesopotamia and his in-laws. Although Jacob will eventually lead his family down to Egypt for the purpose of survival, it's now made clear that the land of Canaan is his home and no other. That's settled. Well, in verse 1, Jacob overhears Laban's sons grumbling about how Jacob's herds and flocks really ought to be theirs. I mean, boy, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? I mean, Levon's sons are just like him. Je jealous and selfish and greedy. Well, when the ever-observant Jacob notices this distinct change in demeanor of Levon's family, he knows it's time to adios. Okay. Um, that notion is verified by God who instructs Jacob that now is the time that he's going to fulfill his promise to bring Jacob back to his home in Canaan. So Jacob consults with his wives. Now, they are more than ready to leave. In fact, here they reveal this deep-seated 
hurt and anger with their father, Levon, because in their eyes, he had shown them the greatest disrespect by virtually selling them to Jacob instead of the, uh, following the usual betrothal customs of that era. And I'd also like to point out something else here. Okay. There can be no doubt that Hebrew society and Middle Eastern society, before there were Hebrews even, was very male-dominated. However, Hebrew society greatly revered women. And any notion that the Bible promotes the idea that women were then or are now of less value than men is just uninformed. Okay. Notice here that the whole, uh, in the Holy Scriptures how it shows us that the first thing Jacob did after God told him it was time to leave was to consult with his wives. Makes a big point out of it. Okay. And it's obvious, by the way, they responded that Jacob greatly considered their feelings and their thoughts on the matter. It's not that Jacob didn't lead. It's that he included his wives in the decision that greatly affected them, all right, leaving their family forever. Hmm. Let's go about five more verses. I'm going to call. Go back here now, all right, to verse 19. Now, Lavon had gone to shear his sheep, so Rachel stole the household gods that belonged to her father. And Jacob outwitted Lavon the Arami by not telling him of his intended flight. So he fled with everything he had. He departed. He crossed the Euphrates River and set out for the hill country of Gilad, Gilead. Not until the third day was Lavon told that Jacob had fled. Lavon took his kinsmen with him and spent the next seven days pursuing Jacob, overtaking him in the hill country of the Gilad. But God came to Lavon the Arami in a dream that night and said to him, Be careful that you don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Okay. When, when Lavon caught up with Jacob, Jacob had set up camp in the hill country. So Lavon and his kinsmen set up camp in the hill country of, Levon, of Gilad. And Lavon said to Jacob, What do you mean by deceiving me and carrying off my daughters as if they were captives taken in a war? Why did you flee in secret and deceive me and not tell me? I would have sent you off with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and lyres. What an appropriate name for an instrument. Okay. You didn't even let me kiss my sons and daughters goodbye. What a stupid thing to do. I have it in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night and said, Be careful that you don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Granted that you had to leave because you so deeply longed for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, Because I was afraid. I said, suppose you take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find your gods with someone, that person will not remain alive. So with your kinsmen as a witness, if you spot anything that I've taken which belongs to you, take it back. Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen them. Lavon went to Jacob's tent, then into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two slave girls. But he didn't find them. He left Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the saddle of the camel and she was sitting on them. Lavon felt all around the tent, 
but he couldn't find them. She said to her father, please don't be angry that I'm not getting up in your presence, but it's the time of my period. So he searched, but he didn't find the household gods. So we find that Jacob plans their escape and he executes it. He puts his family on camels. He separates his property from Laban's. And in an opportune moment, when Laban is off shearing some sheep, they leave. But not before Rachel steals her father's set of household gods and takes them with her on the journey. Now, why would she do that? Okay. The verses just before this answer that question. Okay. In verse 14, the two sisters said to Jacob, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? This was a rhetorical question. In other words, they knew full well that their father had no intention of caring for them. Even more, this is an indication that they're breaking allegiance with their father in favor of Jacob. Because in verse 16 they say, all that Jacob's God took from Laban now belongs to us and our children. Well, in Mesopotamia, it was the tradition that he who possessed the family gods was the owner of the family wealth and authority. By Rachel stealing these gods, it was her intent to assure a family inheritance for herself after her father died. Apparently, she planned on keeping them until Laban went to the grave and then appearing before her family with what amounted to the will, the keys to the safety deposit box, and the right to be the executor of the estate all rolled into one. Okay? I mean, this was a most serious matter that went way beyond petty theft. Okay? But even more, Levon and his family, and likely Rachel as well, believed those idols were real. I mean, that they actually represented real gods. And those who adhered to this system prayed to those little idols for rain, for healing, for children, for increase of flocks, for protection, and so on and so forth. Without his gods, Laban was in a fix. Okay? So Jacob and his family make their break for freedom, but Laban soon finds out they're gone, and he mounts a posse to go after them. And during his search for them, God comes to Laban in a dream and he warns him not to speak good nor bad to Jacob. This simply means Laban's not to try to harm Jacob. But you know, this points out something kind of interesting. God speaks to the unbelieving. Okay, This isn't the first time we've seen Yehovah speaking to pagans and it's not going to be the last. Okay, Laban as I would mentioned early, was a spiritualist. He accepted many gods. So it wasn't really any big deal for him to accept that Laban's God was quite real. Jacob's, uh, uh, rather that Jacob's God was quite real. Jacob's God was just another of a seemingly limitless number of gods. So let us never think that Yehovah only interacts with or speaks to believers. I mean, he'll even communicate with us and use whomever he wish, wishes. I mean, at, at one point he used the donkey. Okay. At, at the same time, let us also not think that because God has spoken to someone 
that that's some kind of indication that that person's a believer. That's not the proof of it. Okay, Levon invoked, uh, loved to invoke Yehovah's name when speaking to Jacob, not because he revered God Almighty or bowed down to him. He did it in hopes of influencing Jacob or Yehovah for his own selfish purposes. Let's stop it there for the night.